that's well, it's on the screen at the back. It's not. Uh, ah, it's up there. That's wonderful. Great. We weren't sure if that would work. Great to be with you tonight, and uh, my apologies that I arrived pretty much at the last minute tonight. The fact was, on the way down this morning, we had a puncture, and I had to sort of uh, change the wheel by the side of the road very quickly. So this afternoon, I had to get the puncture sorted out, and I only just got the car back by the skin of my teeth in time to get down here. So that's why Anthony is not here as well. We had to do it this afternoon because we're driving to Essex tomorrow, and so uh, I need to be sure that the car is drivable and that uh, the spare is not going to let me down. So, let's read together, shall we, from Exodus chapter 32 tonight. This morning we were looking at a passage that's really inspiring in lots of ways, a tremendous vision of what the church was to start with and uh, what God can do through his people. Tremendous vision and uh, very challenging. Well, tonight's challenging, but it's kind of the opposite way because tonight we're looking at a story of failure (laughs) and uh, the biggest failure, the children of Israel, had, uh, had got themselves into since the time when they were uh, brought out of Egypt. So let's read chapter 32, uh, but first of all, just let's put it into, into context. You're doing a series going through Exodus, I know. Uh, it's, a, it's been a long time since you started, though. I know I did one of the first ones, and that was back in 2018. And uh, um, so just in case you're not too sure where we are in chapter 32, what is actually going on? Well, We're at a a chapter where everything has been going so well. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've um, travelled through the desert quite a way and come to the the mountain of Sinai. And although they've had periods of rebellion on the way down, uh, it all seems to have sorted itself out. Uh, They had a a, a bit of a problem at a place called Marah, where there was no water for them to drink. And God did a miracle to stop them grumbling. Then they went through the desert of sin and said, we've got no food, we're all going to die. And they started grumbling again, and God provided food and rained bread on them from heaven, which is unusual. (laughs) And then uh, they they moved on from there, and uh, they had another cause of complaint, and uh, uh, Moses had to do something about that for them as well. So God's been leading them on through various miracles, but they're still not very sure about this God they're following. They've taken a big chance and left Egypt and come out into the desert. Are they going to survive or are they not? They remember dimly the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from years and years before and how God was faithful to them. But they've had 400 years in Egypt, really. And that being the case, lots of things have been forgotten. They've not been able to worship. They've not been able to get to know this God. Now, they're only remembering dimly stories of their their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers. And as a result, they're not too sure about what they've got themselves into. And this is the point where it all bubbles up and and boils over the top. You see, Moses has been going up Mount Sinai and talking to God once or twice. And uh, on the last occasion, starting in chapter 24, he's been able to take 70 of the elders of Israel with him. And Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, some of the key people, and they have actually seen that God is there. They had an incredible experience of God, but they weren't allowed to go as close as Moses was. And so on this occasion, Moses has gone up by himself. Well, they've gone a certain way with him. 
And Joshua, his assistant, is somewhere around as well. But only Moses is allowed into the direct presence of God. And up there, he's been given in the last few chapters all sorts of instructions about building the tabernacle, a place for God to be worshipped, making the ark to go into it, constructing the table, designing the lampstand, equipping the tabernacle, the altar in the courtyard, the garments of the priests, the consecration ceremony for the priests, the altar of incense. It's all there in detail. The atonement money that people have to pay, the basin for washing, the formula for oil and incense, everything right down to the names of the craftsmen who are going to execute all of this. God is, is giving people, giving Moses an incredible... Uh, formula for the future and telling him this is exactly how it's going to be and as he listens to all of this Moses must be feeling quite happy that now things are settled they can get on with the job they can do things the way God wants them and suddenly as he's about to go back God says listen you have a problem down there and all of the stuff that he's been telling Moses is in danger of being completely useless as Moses goes down the hill because of what's happening in the valley down below. So that's what's going on. Let's read some verses then, shall we? I think there are probably five things in this chapter. So let's read, first of all, verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron must have thought, you're talking about my brother. But he didn't say anything. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. A failure of nerve, not willing to trust Moses anymore because he's not been back for a while. We might be stuck in the desert all by ourselves. Help! What do we do now? And the next thing you see in the story is a frightening proposal. This is what God says to Moses in verses 7 to 14. Let's read on. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. And they've said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. And they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then... The Lord relented 
and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. That was the frightening proposal, and Moses seems to have warded it off. The next thing you see is what Moses did when he went down the hill. And I've called it here a forceful response. And that takes us up to verse 21. Here we go. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, because Joshua and Moses have obviously linked up again now on the way down, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. And when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? And clearly the Israelites are are, are stunned by Moses' response. He's back, he's in charge, and his response has done it. But uh, then he's asked Aaron, what's going on here? And Aaron has what I've called a foolish explanation. So let's read that one, verses 22 to 25. Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So so I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and uh, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Silly answer. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so had become a laughing stock to their enemies. And so at this point you start reaching the fearful price, which is the end of the story. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man, strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, What a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go. Lead the people to the place I spoke of. And my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So what are we to make of a passage like this? It's a pretty horrendous story, isn't it? I think it's all about sin. It tells us some very basic things about what happens when you rebel against God. That first section there, a failure of nerve, I think what that's telling us is just this. Sin is always easier 
It's always easier to do the wrong thing than the right thing. It's always easier to give in to pressure than to stand out for what you want you, you know is right. But when you do, you create chaos. And the second thing is that sin deserves judgment. And when God says to Moses, listen, I could destroy them, couldn't I? Why don't I just do that? Moses can only appeal to God's mercy because legally the people don't have a leg to stand on. He's got every right to destroy them if he wants to do that. And even if you don't destroy people, sin destroys life. <laughs> and that's the point of Moses' forceful response here, coming down the hill and, and, and making them realize exactly what they've got into, breaking the tablets these are no use to you now. God has set out plans for the future of the nation. These, uh, While you're in rebellion, these things don't apply. They might as well be broken and shattered on the hillside because you've turned your back on the one reason you should manage to have a, 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 a sensible life. Sin destroys life. The fourth thing, it seems to me, is that sin humiliates people. You see Aaron standing there, don't you, looking stupid and trying to give excuses. And say, well, you know, I just put the stuff in the fire and, oh, it's like a miracle, isn't it? Here's a calf. Well, not it was a calf. You destroyed it now, but you know. And uh, it also uh, uh, has its effect on, on the enemies. They become a laughing stock to their enemies because they're standing and looking by and saying, didn't these people worship an invisible God? What are they doing making cows now? Are they worshipping the milk marketing board? What's going on here? And uh, the Israelites just look absolutely stupid in the light of what's happening. And that's what sin does. It humiliates you. It leads you into a situation where you've just got not a leg to stand on. You're ashamed and you just wish the ground would open up and swallow you up. And the final thing, sin brings consequences. And the Levites with swords in their hands and tears in their eyes have to go through the camp putting to death people who will not say, yes, I'm on the Lord's side. And that judgment that horrendous judgment on 3,000 people is, the, the, is a measure of just how much sin actually costs. And God needs to do this because if they are going to be his people, if they're going to go across the Jordan into a promised land, if they're going to build a nation, if they're going to have a history, and if they're going to keep God at the center of it, they need to realize that rebellion against the one person who can do all of this for them is absolutely stupid. It's crazy. And they need to realize the impact of sin upon their lives. So, let's just have a look at those, those five things bit by bit. Sin is always easier to start with. That's where the chapter begins. And you see, it, it, it's starting, don't you, with something that the Israelites are saying. They're saying, where's Moses gone? We need a leader. We need somebody to go in front of us. And they say, uh, make us gods who will go before us. Most people are like sheep, <laughs> They want to follow somebody or something. They have to have something that makes them feel secure. And Moses did for a while. He led them out of Egypt in the most marvelous way. He provided food and water for them in the most incredible circumstances. And he said it was all coming from God. And it seemed like he had a hot line to God. And he was going up to, to the mountain where there, were, there was fire and flame and walking right into the presence of God. But then he started thinking, what if he doesn't come back? One of these days, suppose we're let down. We need somebody or something to give us hope and purpose and leadership. And so because they don't trust Moses anymore, they start saying to Aaron, what can we have in front of us? What's our goal? What's our vision going to be? And Aaron himself starts thinking, Whew, I could be a little unpopular here. <laughs> I've been associated with Moses. 
He and I have really been the people who've, who, 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 who've, who've led the people. He's been the visionary leader out front. I've been the one that's made people feel good about things. And uh, this is one thing about Aaron, isn't it? He's not quite such a controversialist as Moses. In fact, I was looking at a website this afternoon where a Jewish rabbi was talking about the difference between Moses and Aaron. And he was saying, you know, when I'm doing marriage preparation for a couple, I always ask them, they've got to have to be Jewish couples to understand the question, really, but he always asks them, which do you associate more with? Which do you identify with, Moses or Aaron? <laughs> because he says, normally in a marriage, you'll find somebody who's the leader, who's the visionary, and the other one who's a touchy-feely kind of person whom, uh, who uh, has got... Um, a lot more sympathy and compassion for people. And he said, if people just look at themselves like that before they get married, it can help them avoid a lot of problems later on. Well, maybe so. Certainly Aaron seems to be the more kind of sympathetic, easier person than Moses. And so at this point, he just caves in. And he has this idea about, well, they need something they can worship, they need something they can see. And what if they're right and Moses doesn't come back? I don't want to be associated with somebody who's left them in the lurch. They'll kill me pretty easily. So let's just give them something to worship to be going on with. Now, it's important to see that Aaron is not turning his back on God completely because once he's built this, this calf to worship, uh, the, what he says is, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. He's not saying uh, that God is forgotten about, but he is looking at the calf and saying, this is your God. This is what brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it's a physical representation of strength. That was the thing about a calf, wasn't it? Cows, oxen were strong. They were tough. And you see them used in that way right through the Old Testament. And now they've got a God that they can see. They can visualize the strength of this God. They feel an awful lot more secure with it. But it's a false God. It's a man-made one. And sometimes people can feel pretty secure in life following the wrong kind of God. A God they've made for themselves. You can make a God out of your own career. You can make a God out of comfort. You can make a God out of your family. You can make a God out of almost anything. And you know at one level of your life that this is not really the ultimate. In the back of your mind you know that all of these things are going to let you down one of these days. But it makes you feel secure to be living for that tangible purpose for the time being. And so sin is always easier. Aaron doesn't want to get unpopular. The people don't want to be out there on their own. And so they go into doing something that God has expressly forbidden. Simply because it's the easy way to go. Same for us, isn't it? It's never easy to go God's way instead of the way that the rest of the world is going. But when you do get into sin, then you get into problems. Because sin, the second thing we said was, sin destroys life. And so the Lord says to Moses, well, hang on a minute, we've, we've missed one here, have we? Have we? No, sin is always easier than destroying. Yep, I've got to... No, no, no. Excuse me just a second. Let me just see that I'm going in the right direction here. Uh, yeah. Three. Uh-huh. No, the second thing is God is deserves judgment. I think I've missed one page out here, have I? Yes, I have. All right, let's just talk about this, this then. Uh, shift F5. I'll go back to this page and, and you'll see at least where we're going with these other five things sin is always easier sin deserves judgment I thought I'd put a page for this but it's disappeared somewhere sin deserves judgment and God says things to Moses which I don't know where that page has gone that's very strange indeed it's, it's obviously out of order anyway and he says things to Moses which are perfectly reasonable and yet Moses has the nerve to come back at him Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God 
You'd think if God says, speaking out of the fire and smoke at the top of Sinai, I'm going to destroy these people, but don't you worry, I'm going to make you great. Moses would just say, yes, Lord, okay, fair enough. But Moses really realizes that what God is doing is testing his reaction here. How much do you really understand about me, Moses? Do you think I would just destroy them at a stroke? And Moses, fortunately, isn't fooled for a second. So the Lord says, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. That's the first thing God says. Your people have become corrupt. And Moses answers that. Look at Moses' response in verse 11. Oh Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? They're not my people, Lord. They're yours. You said they were your possession. You cannot just let them go like that. You can't just say, oh, they're your people, so they don't count. You've made promises to these people. And then the Lord says they've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them. They've made an idol. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed and said, these are your gods, O Israel. I've seen them. They're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. And so God says, listen, I've got every right to destroy them, haven't I? They're never going to be any better, are they? You look through the whole history of the Old Testament that's to come, they'll be rebelling against me again and again and again. So why don't I just wipe them out now? And I'll make you a great nation instead. And Moses' response to that is, But Lord, you've made promises. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. What's going to happen to that, Lord? And if you wipe people out then what is everybody else going to think? What's happened in Israel so far has been a tremendous testimony to your faithfulness and your love. It's been fantastic. But now, if you've just led them out into Sinai and the end here, what are the Egyptians going to say? Oh, it was with evil intent that God brought them out to kill them in the mountains. What are people going to make of that? You can't do this, Lord, because you've committed your own name uh, to them. And... uh, Uh, He says, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And God does exactly that. Because Moses has come back at him in the right way. Yes, Lord, you have the right to bring judgment upon people. Because that is what sin deserves. But God, you're a God of mercy. And you're a God of faithfulness to your promises. And you said to these people that they will fulfill all the promises that you made to Abraham. You can't just back out on that. And so not because the people have got anything to recommend them whatsoever, but simply because of his faithfulness, God says to Moses, good answer, I'm not going to do it. My mercy will prevail. So sin is always easier. Sin deserves judgment. And the third thing, let's get there, was that sin destroys life. Now, when you think about it, Moses was coming down the mountain with all sorts of good things in view. And when he was halfway down, he must have wondered whether God had actually got it right, whether there really was anything wrong with the people. Because often, when sin is weeding away at the heart of you, you can look okay on the outside. And he was bringing the tablets down with him, tablets in which all of those different things that God had commanded the Israelites were written down on both sides. It was pretty detailed. It was a full document. And so he had, he had already a great foundation for living because God had given it to them and Moses was carrying these tablets down with care to hand it over to them. It wasn't just a great foundation for living that he had. They also had God's personal involvement. The documents on, on, on the tablet were written with the very finger of God himself. God was involved with them as a people. 
And there was a third thing as well. As they came down the hill, you could hear lots of noise. And Joshua thought, whoa, they're having a battle down there. They're fighting. They're winning victories against our enemies. And it sounded like there was lots of activity and noise going on. And isn't that a warning? Isn't it possible that within the people of God, there can be lots of activity going on? There can be a tremendous foundation in Scripture and in God's promises for for what we're doing. There can be a, a, a track record of God's faithfulness to people individually involving himself with the lies and yet there can be something very wrong indeed and Moses says to Joshua that's not fighting that's not the sound of victory it's not the sound of defeat either it's the sound of something completely irrelevant they've given up the battle they're not interested in fighting anymore they just want to have a party and so he comes down and uh, what he does uh, when he gets to, to the bottom is it seems to be three things First of all, the tablets get thrown down and broken into pieces. And what he's saying through that dramatic movie is, God has sent you this, but you don't want it, do you? Smash! You've walked away from him. Don't accept compromises. Aaron says you're worshipping the Lord. But this party is hardly worship. And what's more, it's not something that God has commanded you to do. So you're saying, oh, it's all for the Lord. And you're doing exactly the things that he's told you not to do. That's what sin often looks like, isn't it? We can coat it over, sugarcoat it as, well, I'm doing this for God, really. And your service is not what he's commanded and not what he wants. People have fought one another in the name of God. People have been inhuman to one another in the name of the Lord. People have taught all sorts of error in the name of the Lord. People can do all kinds of things and say, it's for God, so it's okay. And Moses smashes the tablets as a a, a violent demonstration in front of them all that, listen, if you're doing what you're doing, God is irrelevant to your concerns. But that's not all he does. The next thing he does is that he takes that uh, golden calf and grinds it into powder, scatters the powder into water and says, come on, everybody's going to have a drink. (laughs) And what's he saying through that? Well, first of all, obviously, the idol has no power. It's got no value. There's no supernatural uh, power in it, and uh, it's not going to strike him with a thunderbolt because he's destroying it. He's just shown it's got no value whatsoever. But making them drink, that's a bit cruel, isn't it? Well, it's just showing them, I think, that evil leaves a bitter taste. When we're involved in something sinful, it's not just something we can get out of scot-free. Even when we confess our sin and we come back to God and he's forgiven us completely, we may have done something that leaves a bitter aftertaste. And uh, I know people who've who've, uh, made a mess of their lives and come back and been gloriously forgiven, yet they've damaged themselves in one way or another, damaged their health through some of the things they've been doing, damaged relationships that will never be the same again, done things that have just marred their lives in ways that cannot be set right. And so what Moses is saying is, listen, sometimes there's a bitter drink to stomach at the end of this process. Forgiveness is one thing, recovery can be another. And the third thing is, Aaron's called on to be accountable. And that's important, isn't it? Who started this? What's going on? Is the person concerned willing to own up to it and, uh, and uh, uh, realise what they've done? Because often you can't Really accept forgiveness from God, can you? Until you've faced up to your sin. You've realized just how far short you've fallen. And often, people have a sort of super fact official, oh, I I did something wrong, but then I I went back to God, and it's all right now. 
until you've really looked at what sin means and how it's affected you. And you've, been, you've begun a resolve just never to get involved with that again. You've not really repented. You've not really turned around. There's an old hymn that goes, Break every barrier down, thou Lamb of Calvary. Show me the awfulness of sin, the thing that grieveth thee. And real repentance, real turning around to go in the opposite direction, means looking closely at what you've done and accepting responsibility for it. Which, of course, Aaron doesn't do. (laughs) And so Aaron gets humiliated, and the people get humiliated, simply because of this silly, silly excuse he comes up with. What did these people do to you, says Moses to Aaron, that you led them into such great sin? Why would you do this to God's people? Why would you allow them to get into this kind of thing? And it says something there about the responsibilities of leaders, doesn't it? If the people of God really matter to you, you will have sometimes to stand up and say unpopular things. You'll have to make decisions you really don't want. If you just go along with everything, then you're going to end up not being a leader at all. And actually, that's not love. It's the opposite. What do these people do to you, Aaron, that you should let them down in this way? And Aaron's answer, well, first of all, he says, well, these people are always trouble. You know that. Do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. It's not me. It's them. And isn't that always the first First uh, response when somebody accuses us of something. Who else can I blame? How can I find somebody else to blame? And so he blames the people. They're always trouble. They're always always uh, doing the wrong thing. And he said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And do you know what they were saying about you? <laughs> That's his second line of defense. They said, and he quotes the words that we've heard earlier in the chapter, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. What's he trying to do here? He's trying to get Moses on his side. They said that about me? All right, I'm on your side then, Aaron. But it doesn't work, does it? However, we do try to do that sometimes, don't we? Draw other people into it to make ourselves feel better, to deflect some of the blame from us. Then Aaron says, So all I said was, take off your jewellery. <laughs> I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Well, that's a half-truth, isn't it? Because he said, take off the gold earrings that uh, your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Clearly, he had a plan right from the word go, what I need for this calf or some earrings and need to be brought to me so that I can do some work. He did a bit more than that. It says, doesn't it, that he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf and fashioned it with an engraving tool. <laughs> so he's done a lot of work on this. But all he said to Moses is, oh, I, all I said was, uh, take off your jewellery. What do you expect? I mean, they give me all these earrings. Well, I mean, I have to, have to do something with them. So I thought, well, might as well make a calf then. <laughs> well, no, he didn't say that, did he? Because the other thing he said was this. I put it in the fire and guess what popped out? Look, it was a calf. So um, we thought, well, you know, can't waste a good calf. Let's worship it. That's a pretty poor excuse, isn't it? But he's just trying to get distance himself from any blame whatsoever. And Moses looks at him, and they're brothers. So Moses, Moses doesn't need to say a word. <laughs> and Aaron just feels about six inches high. <laughs> you can't excuse this. He's in the wrong, and he ought to admit it. And things won't be sorted until he does sort it out. Sin humiliates people. We've seen a lot of this over the last few years, haven't we? where people who've been respected Christian leaders have bowed to pressure in the same way that Aaron has. 
And things have been discovered subsequently about their, their private lives, their personal lives, which they've denied to start with. They've tried to distance themselves from, and it's been proved to be true. And as a result, their ministry has crashed, and uh, they've, they, they, they've lost uh, the reputation they had. Sin humiliates people. And it's humiliated the whole people because Moses saw, verse 25, that the people were running wild and Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. Other nations are looking at them. They think nobody can see, but actually they're being watched all the time. The tribes around, even if you can't see them in the Sinai Desert, they're popping around the side of mountains and having a look at what's going on. Say, ha, look at those Israelites. Look what they're up to. <laughs> and our reputation is more carefully examined than we sometimes think. When Christians slip into compromise, sin, living one thing and saying another, other people notice. That's why it says in the Bible, be sure your sin will find you out. Because you cannot carry on in that way without it becoming obvious to everybody. And so uh, they've all become humiliated by the, the, the evil they've been involved in. There was a fourth thing, though. Uh, 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 no, this is a fifth one, isn't it? <laughs> that sin brings consequences. And that's, that's uh, the, 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 the final thing here. Moses stands at the entrance to the camp and he says, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And they have a clear choice to make. Listen, folks, you've been going the wrong way. We have a God of mercy who will perhaps have you back. Or you can persist in, in what you're already doing. Who's on this side and who's on that side? And all the Levites rally to Moses. And then the instructions are given are chilling, aren't they? Take a sword, all of you, and go back and forth through the camp. Not just one run, but back and forth. Until those people, who are your brothers and friends and neighbours, have been killed. And so 3,000 people die in one day. And uh, it's, it's, it's a horrendous thing to happen. But what God is saying through this, early in the history of the nation, is, listen, sin is important. If you try to live any old way, if you try to live by your own pattern instead of mine, if you try to adopt my adapt my rules and say, oh, God didn't really mean that, then you're going to end up in trouble. And I am going to show you once for all in this, this horrendous way just how seriously I take sin and how seriously you must as well. So 3,000 people died. Forgiveness was still not certain either. Do you see what Moses says at the end of this? You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. It's not certain. And so he goes back up to God and says, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. Now please forgive their sin. And he says something really good, doesn't he? But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. I wonder if I did something there. Possibly, I don't know. But... Uh, yeah, there we go, we're back on again. Uh, uh, and Moses is saying, look, I identify with these people. They are my people. If you're going to punish them, punish me instead. Block me out of the book that you, you, you've written. I don't want to be the father of a great nation in the way that you were talking about earlier. If my people die, I will die with them. And that's one of Moses' better moments, isn't it? He's not always so keen to identify with the Israelites, but here he gets it right. But God is, is relentless. And he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. However, 
when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And so what God is showing through all of this is, is, is pretty remorseless. This is the way the law works. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You keep my laws, you live, you have prosperity. You turn against me, and uh, that, that's the end. Moses got the message because you see him, don't you? Uh, at the end of his life, standing in front of Israel and saying, Behold, I have set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. And that's the way it was in the Old Testament. But the great thing for us is that the Bible is a, a book of two mountains. <laughs> well, several mountains, but two important ones. And Mount Sinai is only the start of the process. And what God is doing with the Israelites here is just showing a little bit of the impossibility of any of us living up to his standards. We have hearts that wander. We'll make our own gods. We'll go off and worship golden calves. We'll do things uh, by ourselves. And we cannot help ourselves. And this is all part of the process for the arrival of Jesus and his death on that other mountain at Calvary. And you know, when the, the Israelites got to Sinai, 3,000 people died. As we saw this morning, when Jesus died on Calvary, 3,000 people came to faith on the day of Pentecost. You could hardly have a more direct contrast, could you? In Moses' day, forgiveness wasn't certain. Perhaps the Lord will forgive you. We have a promise that we are secure because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is ransomed by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And God says at the end of this chapter, punishment's still coming. When it's time to punish, I will punish. And you and I, because of Calvary, because of the resurrection, because we've accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers, we'll never face the wrath of God. And so the contrast between Mount Sinai, which shows us the best that the law can do, and Calvary, where God has led us into something completely different, is there implicit in Exodus 32, isn't it? Let's just pray together for a second. Let's do that. So, Heavenly Father, it's been a, a, a passage tonight of a solemn challenge to us. And I don't know if there are people here who are involved in something that others don't know about, but they're ashamed of. If there are people who are tempted to compromise or give in to pressure from others to, to live in a way that they know is, is, is ungodly. If there are, there, there are patterns in their lives which include things we wouldn't have forgiven ourselves for a few years ago, but which now we've started to rationalize. Father, if there's anything like that in us, then help us to sort that out and realize how important it is to live a life that's kept free from sin by the power and the victory of Jesus Christ. And if that's not our case, Father, help us still to look at this passage and marvel at how much more we have been given we who live after the cross and the resurrection and help us see that all of these things as it says in 1 Corinthians are written as examples for us to spur us on to help us live in the way we should 
and to be endlessly grateful for the Lord who came down himself and died on that other mountain so that we could go free. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. <laughs>